June 30th, 2022. We're in Masechet Sanhedrin Andaf Sadiq Amud Bet. Four lines from the bottom, two words before the end of the line. Of course, the Gemara is in the context of Tehiyat Ametim. So the Gemara tells another one of these strange interactions and conversations between someone from outside the camp and someone from inside. Sha'ala Cleopatra Hamalka or Malketa Etrbi Meir. Cleopatra. Is this the Cleopatra? It can't really be because it doesn't match up. Well, it's possible. It's possible to be Meir's living in Israel. Maybe he visited, I don't know, Egypt, or maybe it's a different Cleopatra. Irrespective of which Cleopatra, the queen, we're dealing with over here, she asks to be Meir the following, as per the Gemara. Amra, yad'ana de haye shachveh. She says, I know that um, those who are shachveh, those who are lying down, those who will lie down, dead people, haye, I know they'll come back to life. She says, I'm able to, I don't know that she's saying amida, but I can say it full-heartedly, metim. I know that, and I've accepted that, dikhtiv, and not only that, she cites a pasuk. Dikhtiv, the pasuk says in, in Tehillim, uh, the following, vayasitsu, or vayasitsu rather, me'ir, Ke'esev ha'ares. Lasis means to blossom, uh, so to speak. Uh, we will blossom from the ground. Specifically, which ground, the pasuk says, me'ir. That's interesting. So she cites a pasuk from Tehillim, which uh, her interpretation, perhaps the easiest interpretation, is one of Tehiyat HaMetim. Parenthetically, in that pasuk in Tehillim, the reference to where the resurrection will take place from is Ir, is from Yerushalayim. There's something to be said about that. We'll return to that in a few minutes. Ela, however, she says, accepting that Tehiyat HaMetim is a reality, I still have a question. Keshehen Omdin, when they stand up, Omdin Arumin, or Bilvushehen. Do they stand clothed? Or are the uh, people who will become alive in Tehiyat HaMetim naked? That's the question. She wants to know. Of course, you know, at first glance, it sounds like, what's that? At the first glance, it sounds like the typical, you know, the woman question. That's all you're interested in. What clothing? Are you, now, do you want to know what the fashion will be at that time and so forth? But uh, perhaps there's a certain depth to this question. He certainly will take it very seriously. His response first, Amar la, says Rabbi Meir, Kalvahomer mechita. He says, perhaps looking at the natural world, I can derive some sort of perspective. I'll look at a stalk of wheat. Umachita shenikbera aruma. He says, what? When what will be the future stalks of wheat is buried in the ground, there's no kernel and chaff around it. It's kind of, there's no chaff around it. There's no. Um, there's no uh, a protective shell around it. It's just the kernel placed into the ground. So when it's nikbera, it's aruma. It's completely unclothed. Yosea, um, when the uh, when the stalk of wheat comes out of the ground, so the kernel now is bekamalevushin. They're 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 it's covered with many levels and layers of quote unclothing. A quote-unquote clothing. As a result, says Rabbi Meir, if wheat is such, and again, he's imagining wheat as the closest, at least in his mind, in this world, to a natural tehiyat uh, metim. So you deal with a kernel, which doesn't have the surrounding shell. You place that in the ground. When it comes out, it comes out with the shell. Sadikim shenikbirim bilvushehen alahat kama vechama. This is the righteous ones. The individuals from Am Yisrael who are buried and buried traditionally with clothing on, all the more so that when they emerge, they'll emerge with clothing as well. All right, that's the end of that first midrash. So again, as I promised, 
two, two quick points to be made. Number one, the me'ir, the pasuk that's being cited, and Rashiv draws attention to the Gemara and Masechet Ketubot and Dafkof Yod Aleph, which seems to state explicitly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu HaOseh Lahem Mechilod HaSadikim Ve'olchin Ve'olin Yerushalayim. There's some sort of association between Yerushalayim and Tehiyat HaMetim. Of course, the most basic assumption, the basic explanation is, well, when something important is taking place, it's taking place in Jerusalem. Or alternatively, if Tehiyat HaMetim is that resurrection, if it's the ability to quote-unquote give humanity that second chance, give humanity that second rising, well, it would stand to reason that we would begin again quote-unquote the way we began originally. The Midrash, which Rashi cites in his commentary Allah Torah, and little-known fact to many, Harambam cites in his Mishneh Torah, is that um, we emanated from, uh, uh, we were made afar min ha'adama, and min ha'adama, one of two interpretations Rashi has, one of them being from the adama of makom ha'mizbeach, that Makom HaMizbeach, of course, in Yerushalayim, is a storied place. Many historical things took place there. Harambam says that's where Akedah Yitzhak was and so forth. But fundamentally, it's where we were originally and initially crafted by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we were taken Afar Min HaAdama, as the Pasuk describes in Bereshit Perek Bet. As a result, if Tehiyat HaMetim is, and when it is to occur, oh, the Pasuk is attributing its place to that very same place. It's this full cycle of events in the life of human beings, in the life of the world, where the same place we began, well, that's where we'll begin again, and that's to a certain extent where we'll end. Uh, what about the clothing reference? Well, the clothing reference can and should be taken first and foremost at the most basic level, and that is, it's a question about physicality. Is tehiyat ametim just spiritual? Will you emerge as a soul of a ghost, a ghost of sword, or an angel? Or alternatively, are you going to have a physicality? That's the question. Quote unquote, the miraculous side of Tehiyat HaMetim is not as much the spiritual existence that many of us, if not all of us, could accept easily. The fact that there'll be an eternal um, spiritual manifestation in some way or another in every and any domain, okay, that we can kind of accept. The fact that you're going to emerge physically when your physical body has deteriorated already, that's what she's asking. She's punching, she's pointing to that point and saying, so you can have clothing. And clothing need not mean, therefore, the clothing of style, the clothing that we put on top of our skin, but it might be a reference to the, clo the clothing of our skin. It might be a reference to the flesh of our bodies. That's what she's asking, in which case the response is, no, the Tehiyat HaMetim we're referring to is one of full physicality, not just spirituality. It's all the more so miraculous and out of this world type of phenomenon. Uh, I would just suggest one last layer on that, and I would just point out that the Torah, I've mentioned this on many occasions, so Jesse, as much as I'm talking right now, I hope these are the points I've, I've made in the past, the Torah describes clothing in the context of sin of Adam and Hava. The mention in the Torah is that they were arumim velo yitboshashu, and they're not embarrassed, and immediately thereafter, the beginning of the next Pedic describes the sin of Adam and Hava, and their eyes open, and vayu, and they realize that they're arumim, that they're naked, and as a result, they take from an alete ena, and they craft for themselves clothing. Clothing, then, represents regular human existence, a world wherein we can and did sin. 
It's an out of Gan Eden existence. It's a this worldly, regular existence characteristic of human beings. The question then is so, even if there is physicality in the future, what sort of physicality is this going to be? Is it going to be a world in which the miraculous is taking place and which challenges are diminished? Or alternatively, is Tehiyat HaMetim going to look and feel the way it feels and looks today? That's the question that she's asking to him. Why is clothing used, my last point on this, in the Torah and over here as that, that uh, paradigm for regular life existence? So I've said on more than one occasion, the difference between living quote-unquote in the Gan and outside of the Gan is the difference between a life of process and a life of immediacy. Uh, where it's a life of immediacy in Gan Eden, everything was there. There was no challenge. There was nothing to be fulfilled. Clothing is an, uh, there's no necessity for clothing. By definition, clothing builds a barrier. You don't know exactly what I look like. You don't know exactly my social standing because I can fool you with my clothing. Clothing builds a separation. It defines a life of process. In turn, her question to Rabbi Meir could and perhaps should be interpreted as such. Is Tehiyat HaMetim going to bring forth a life which is altogether different? Or alternatively, is it going to be like Haram Bams Yomot HaMashiach? It's going to be no different than today. Perhaps we'll have more knowledge. Maybe there'll be less stress. I certainly hope so. Maybe the economy will be built up. I mean, you know, the, way, the way Haram Bam has, by the way, Yomot HaMashiach is the reason we'll be more successful and life will be easier is because we will be smarter. As a result of being smarter, our competitive side will be diminished. We'll realize we can do this in an easier way, so we'll all be making a lot of money. We'll all be living a life in which we realize we don't need as much money. We'll have knowledge of God, of truth, and in turn, the world will be an easier existence. Not to say, not a regular existence. That in turn is perhaps what this Midrash is, is about. Is there a common theme here similar to what they asked before about speaking? About humans, how they speak as opposed to animals don't speak, and now humans have clothing. Is there a theme being built here? In my mind, the Gemara is subtly building that theme for us. It's subtly describing for us that you're going to see in the next few lines as well, that Tehiyat HaMetim is a human-endowed experience. I'll go one step further. It brings it back to the conversation, important conversation at the end of the class with Sammy yesterday. And I think that if anything, although they didn't do it explicitly over here, they're going to be uh, talking about the beauty of such. Words, instead of looking at your life in this world as gee, gosh, I wish I was just in that next world. Let's stop for a moment and understand what we have here and the opportunity that these challenges present to us. Yes, Charles? On the same note of clothing, you could say that what would happen if somebody's, let's say, body's physically deteriorates and they're getting sick? So are they coming back to the last form that they left? So the Gemara will address that. I don't know that in the same way the Gemara will address deformities. Uh -huh. And it'll have... It'll have a little bit of a sobering uh, thought for us because it'll describe returning with those deformities. But it but comes back to the same conversation. Do I want to be in these deformities and so forth? Yes. In other words, What's that? Exactly, Elon. Says the Gemara onward, bottom line, Amar le Kesar le Rabban Gamliel. So the Caesar of sorts, maybe the Roman Caesar, says to Rabban Gamliel, Amritu, you guys say, Deshachveh, that those who are lying, those who are dead, will come alive. So it's a similar question to the way we just interpreted the last one. Uh, and in, in turn, it makes sense that that's the interpretation of the last one. It says, but you are and will be 
uh, dust and dirt after death. I mean, uh, you don't need to look under the ground. The Torah tells us, I mean, that's, that's the uh, destiny of something phys- physical which is buried. Does dust, does dirt get life? Amrale Barte, the daughter of the Caesar, listening to this conversation or attack upon Rabban Gamliel from her father, says, Shafke, uh, you know what, Rabban Gamliel, honorable rabbi, leave him alone. Ve'ana mehadranale, I'll respond to him. So she now speaks up to her father and says, Shene yosrim yesh be'irenu. Let's say, for argument's sake, says the daughter of the Caesar, there are two craftsmen in our city. Ehad yosir min hamayim, one uses water to craft. Ve'ehad yosir min aptit, and the other one uses mud in order to craft. Ezemehen mishubach, which one's more praiseworthy? I keep in mind, the, the craftsman from the water, she's not referring to even chiseling ice. We're not really dealing with a, a, uh, an environment in which they could have much ice. So she says, well, which one's more praiseworthy? The one who can use water to construct anything? Or the one who uses mud? Her father says, the Caesar says to his daughter, I mean, that's nothing short of, of, of miraculous. He uses water to craft items that are stationary in some and functional in some way? Amrale, the daughter responds now to the Caesar, If God began creation from the water, so then craftsmanship from mud, of course, will be a, a possibility. If it's harder to craft from water, and he was able to do from water, so of course he'll be able to do from, uh, from mud. So of course the question is, well, when did God create with water? I mean, unless this is a wrongful reading of Bereshit, of Veruach Elohim Merachefet al unless this is a wrongful interpretation of uh, no creation ex nihilo, there was no Bereyayesh Me'ayin, and God takes Tohu Vavo in order to craft, which in and of itself is amazing, but is that what it's a reference to? Rashi instead suggests that this is a reference to the biological uh, buildup of human beings. In other words, not the first craftsmanship of a human being, but anyone thereafter. It's mitipa siruha, uh, a male and female with sperm and the egg fertilization is effectively, quote-unquote, the water domain. Look and think about those sorts of uh, realities. It's closer to water, certainly, than to uh, dirt and to nice dust. That That's that. nice that the daughter answers that. The daughter sends... The answer that we were created from the dirt. That's the easiest <laughs> answer. Our bodies being the water. It doesn't work about how I know, no, you don't need a couple of homeowners. But, but Jesse, she's... From it's very nice. No, 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 that, no, by the way, Tehiyat Abedim is going to be from God, but, but, but the, 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 the interpretation has to be as follows, and, and the response in turn makes a lot of sense as well. She's dealing with, first and foremost, I don't know where she's holding in terms of her acceptance, right? But she's dealing with the claim of her father. Her father's claim is, I'm looking at human beings, I don't know about the beginning, I'm looking at human beings and I'm looking biologically at the construction of human beings. I know it has something to do with quote-unquote tipa seruha. I'm going to use those words for now, right? And so, uh, but I can't understand. It's not from dirt. And her response is, well, if biologically we're still experiencing that, keep God out of it if you must. But place, I don't know how you put human beings in the middle of that, but they're being crafted in such a fashion. So then dirt, then mud, all the more so. You see, but what she leaves out 
and it might be endemic to her society, and, and we'll see a response very quickly thereafter, she leaves out any spiritual manifestation. In other words, whereas the question of uh, Cleopatra to Rabbi Meir, we interpret it as, is it only going to be spiritual, or will there be a physical dimension? Her answer, I know she's, she's speaking to her father, who's questioning the physical side, but she leaves no room for any spiritual. All she describes is, well, the construction could and will come forth, because it could come even from dirt. She doesn't even mention, that doesn't mean that she's not accepting, but she doesn't have any mention of a ruach, of a nefesh, of a neshama. The Gemara's next line will therefore fix that, quote-unquote. says the Gemara, Dever Bishmael Tana. Dever Bishmael taught in this context. Now this is going to be a little bit difficult for Rashi. Because the Dever Bishmael, you can look at just the first two words of their statement, it's the words Kalvahomen. Kalvahomen means they're somehow going to be rationally explaining this experience of tehiyat ametim, not what we're looking for, for from the rabbis for Rashi. If you recall, Rashi and our Mishnah said, Haomer in tehiyat ametim min ha-Torah, that's an individual who doesn't get ha-haya olam haba. If you recall, ha-halek la-olam haba. If you recall, Rashi said, even if a person accepts in some sort of logical or other wor- uh, otherwise interpretation, tehiyat ametim is a reality, but they don't look for sourcing in the Torah, that's a problematic position. Why would it be Ishmael and his Beit Midrash now be logically be looking for some vantage point to Tehiyat Ametim? It's for that re- reason, very, very simply, Rashi has the following words. It's in the right hand side, the first, uh, second narrow line. Just look at the, the next five words. Vezohi Teshuba Sheheshiva Le'aviha. Rashi says that according to the Verbi Ishmael, this was the answer the daughter gave to her father, the Caesar. They have a different version of the story. Why is Rashi saying that? Why didn't Rashi just say the Verbi Ishmael jumped in later on in the moment to give a different interpretation? He can't accept such an interpretation would be said by the rabbis. The rabbis wouldn't talk like that. We're not looking to logically talk about Hayat Ametim. This is my interpretation of Rashi. We talk about Hayat Ametim as Masoret, as uh, maybe not Mefurash, as Meru. But anyway, that being the case, I said we can logically perhaps <laughs> set forth evidence for this uh, to answer the Caesar's issue. Mikilize chuchit from uh, from uh, glass utensils. Makilize chuchit she'amalan beruach basar vadam. If I look at glass, which is crafted, which is made by the, uh, the, the breath of human beings, of flesh and blood, nishberu, if they get broken, yesh lahem takana, there's still a way with heat and enough uh, air and blowing to bring them back together. Will it look exactly the same? I guess it depends how good you are. Basar vadam, sheberucho shel hakadosh baruchu, ala hat kama vechama, says if human beings who fundamentally, but you understand how we, we shifted gears over here, instead of focusing on the physical composure and construction of human beings, we're now completely on the spiritual. So effectively what the Verbi Ishmael has set forth, wait a second, you forgot a pretty critical dimension. You got stuck in the miraculous side of the physicality, ignoring the ignoring that second and very important dimension of human beings. And as a result, once I talk about that, I mean, come on, to compare anything in this physical domain, to compare anything in this world and say, well, if it was dirt, it can't come back, and it's up. 
uh, comparing something with something altogether different. We're dealing with a human being who's brought forth with, as the Torah describes it, with a nishmat hayim, with that breath of God. Amar la Next story. So that's the end of that one. Amar lehahumina. So some heretic speaks to Lirbi Ame. Amritu. You guys say. Your peoples say. Uh, again, uh, he's out of them. He's a mean. He's a heretic. Right. This time he's not accepting it like Cleopatra. This time he's not in the same way questioning it as was the Caesar. He now has the following questions. Very similar to the Caesar's question. He says uh, the human beings become Athar after death. And how can Athar, how can dust come back to life? So this will be the third level of response. So we had two levels of response already. This is a response of Rabbi Ameh in this circumstance. So level number one response was trying to deal with it in the physical domain, if it's possible and not possible and so forth. Level number two was, well, let's just look at the spiritual side of human beings and understand, therefore, human beings are altogether different. This is with the breath of God. Third interpretation. Now, to understand and to, to realize, he's not giving a kalvahome this time. He's just giving a mashal. He's just, I'll give you something that you can appreciate what this is like from. To a man, a, a king of flesh and blood, who says to his, his slaves, to his servants, Go and build for me mansions. Great mansions and palaces in a place where there's no water or, um, or, or dirt. Uh, effectively, uh, an impossible uh, a building. I guess you can construct it just from wood, but how strong is it going to be if constructed just from wood with no cement? They go and they built these mansions, these palaces. Of course, it took just a few days, just a little bit of time, and those palaces and mansions fall. Amar lahem turns the king to his slaves and his servants and says to them, "Hizru ubnu oto b'makom sheyesh afar umahem." All right, mission accomplished. I'm not so surprised by the outcome. Now go to a place where there is easily accessible water and dirt and build for me a mansion, palaces over there. Amrulo enanu yecholim. They say, "Chalas, we can't do this." So he turns to them and he says, "What do you mean you can't do it? You just did almost the impossible. I know it fell." But now you can't build it when I gave you the resources. If, if in a place where there was no water and dirt, you were able to, maybe it wasn't a stable structure, but you were able to build something. In a place where there is dirt and water, all the more so you'll be able to do this. This, of course, is a mashal which brings us back to Adam and to human beings. If the human being is constructed, Jesse, first in the dimension, Rashi has two interpretations this. First with human beings as we know them today. Human beings as we know them today, if we look at it biologically, is from tipasiruhats, from the sperm and the eggs, which are an egg which is fertilizing. And as a result, I look at that and I say, that's makom shel mayim. So there's water, there is something existent. Uh, so that I'll be able to look at and say, well, that's a mayim, but not a full-fledged mayim. It's a, you know, kind of removed from mayim. There's certainly no athar in such a circumstance. So if a human being can and is crafted coming forth in such a place 
where there is no afar. So now that a human being is in the ground and afar, well, Allah kama you can all the more so appreciate that in the future there'll be an ability to craft and bring forth life again. Alternatively, says Rashi, go back to the original craftsmanship of human being. He says, look at the world of tohu vavohu. If God could craft human beings from tohu vavohu, so then all the more so that he can create them from what they once were, the athar, and then rebuild them, so to speak. Yes, Sam? What, what do they mean we can't? Why can't they? Why they respond as such? In other words, if you could do it without... The, the, their answer is very strange. Of course. And it's just another Kalba right? This is a Kalba Effectively, it's a Kalba Homer. But a Kalba Homer, based on the thing that they should not have been able to do, they did. And the thing that's easy, they say, we can't. They right. They it. They right. it. I don't get it. They are playing the role of a misunderstood God. That's the Kalba Homer. Or that's the mashal. These people are the misunderstood God. You accepted that God could create without water and dirt. You can't accept now, excuse me, that, that you, you accepted that God created without water and dirt. You can't accept now that he can create with water and dirt. That's, that's how he's, so it's, it's you know. Yeah. They, their, their role is, that's just, just Effectively, a logical they mashup. Without anything, and then they say we can't. Again, because that is, they are a concept. They are, they, absolutely. Right. The Gemara goes a step further over here. Says, says Rabbi Ameh in this circumstance, again, as he's responding to this heretic of sorts, Vim i'ata ma'amin, and if you don't trust me that God could do this, Say, and I'm pausing before we continue and just cautioning, the Gemara will have a few interesting lines over here. We'll have to read them and understand them. And Jesse, to the best of our ability. If you don't believe me, go out to the valley and pay attention while you're there because you'll see something there that will remind you of what I'm describing. It's not a fulfillment of what I'm describing. It's not a reality of what I'm describing. It'll remind you of that because you'll see over there Akhbar, a certain rat. If you look at it as it is composing itself, as it is growing, You'll see today, of the first few moments and days, it's half dirt and half flesh. Ulmahar, and then tomorrow, as time progresses, hishris, and through movement of sorts, na'asakulo basar, it'll become fully flesh. What's he referring to and what's he describing and how does it have relevancy? So first and foremost, what he's describing, the Gemara Masechet Hulin goes at greater length than Dafkof. It's a spontaneous generation. That's what he's describing. He's describing something that in the eyes of the wise people of that generation was a reality. And that is that without any sexual activity, there could be sprouting forth life from almost nothingness, from dirt. Now, we know today, biologically and scientifically, there's no such thing. This was, Aristotle was fully accepting of spontaneous generation. For generations, the wisest and smartest people accepted this. It was in the science and medical books of the time. So he's describing that Harambam, fascinatingly, in his Perusha Mishnayot, famously in Masechet Hulin, describes how he spoke to a wise person who told him there is such a reality out there, I think, in Egypt. 
I don't know that he describes seeing it, but there is such a mention here and in one or two other places in Talmud of spontaneous generation. We've discussed it in the context of Hilchot Shabbat, of killing the lice which spontaneously generate as described by the rabbis. Now, that, I'll leave that aside for a moment. Why is it being mentioned over here? The description is if you can look in the natural world and find something which is quote-unquote spontaneously generating, you now are close to the thought that human beings won't be that way. Uh, what do we do with the fact that but there is no spontaneous generation? The answer to that question is a longer class and conversation, but the beginnings of it in a minute and a half right now, the beginnings of it go as follows. To be able to appreciate nonetheless in our Gemara, leaving that issue aside, and to be able to first and foremost on that issue, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam famously states that whereas the Hachamim were at the top of the science of their generation, science has progressed. Science will progress. To look at them and to say, well, I can't believe that on a scientific matter they were deficient is to not understand the circumstance and the life of science. Science does progress. It's not to say that therefore it impinged and messed up their Torah. It means that their understanding of the world was very much in line with the top understanding of that time. What do you do in circumstances of halacha when the science that they're describing, this is not one of those, where the science that they're describing doesn't match up to the science of, of today. That's a separate conversation which we've had on many occasions. That's the famous Teshubah these days in Yabi with regards to Rabbi Shem and Hacham Ovadia Yosef disagreeing about that sort of matter. But again, I'll send in the chat afterwards. We've discussed that on many occasions. What do you do with this Gemara? Do you walk away from this Gemara a little unsettled? I think not. Ultimately speaking, Rabbi Ameh is saying, go and look at what you see now. I've never seen this, this, uh, this rat. I've never seen lice in, I don't see lice ever. I don't know, maybe once with my child, right? But the description of lice, for example, in hair, and the reason it was believed to have been spontaneously generating is because it's so minuscule and so tiny, the reproductive stage of the lice, that to the naked eye of a human being, it appears to be spontaneous generation. So what the description then of Rabbi Ahmed uh, nah, this is me speaking. This doesn't need to be scientific. You can't conceive of such a reality. You've never seen something that you can say, oh my goodness, it looks like that's what's taking place. Go and look at it. Remind yourself a little bit of it. He's not proving it anyway. He's not proving Tehiyatametim by describing this. He's giving it as a vantage point. So he says, you want a vantage point for this? Go and look at that rat, which it appears to be something which is generating itself spontaneously. And now tell me that you can't even have a reference point for the way it's going to work with Tehiyat HaMetim. Says the Gemara, lastly, Shemet Omar, maybe you'll say to me, says Rabbi Ahmed to this heretic, he says, Shemet Omar, maybe you'll say to me, Lisman Meruba, it takes a long time. Those rats don't come to forth right away. It takes time for the, the dirt to turn into flesh and so forth. He says, Alelaha. Okay, so you're in the valley. When you're finished in the valley, you make your way up the mountain. And look down. Today there's only one chilazon. We'll define that word in a second. Tomorrow, water will fall. It'll rain. And it will be filled. The entirety of that valley, which you're looking at from the top on the mountain, will be filled with many chilazons. What's this a description of? First and foremost, before we define anything more, it's a description of something taking place very quickly. 
you know, um, I'll give you an example in my own life. You know, leave something out in New Jersey in the garbage, exposed, and you leave for three days and return, and there are hundreds of thousands of maggots. Where did those maggots come from? How did it happen that quickly? It happens that quickly. So that's the description. Instead of maggots in the Gemara, we have Hilazon. It's just about something taking place really quickly. It didn't, you saw one thing to the eye. You really believe that God can't move this quickly? Look in the natural world, things move very quickly. What is Hilazon? Hilazon, of course, is most associated with this past week's parasha, with the Techelet with the Sisit, Rashi associates this one directly with that. The Gemara in Masech Menachot and Daf Memdalit describes how Hilazon is something which emerges from the sea, says the Gemara Min Hayam, once every 70 years, which is an interesting description. And the number 70 in the eyes of the rabbis is very significant as well. Uh, what is a Hilazon that comes forth and gives the dye for the Techelet, for that light blue strand that we have on the Sisiot traditionally? So we'd say today, easily, and... Uh, you know, just go back to when you were in middle school. Nobody said snail then. It's an amazing thing. Today, everybody easily right away says it's a snail. It was, it was a novelty then. Rashi, as a matter of fact, writes tolat. Rashi writes tolat. Sounds like it's a worm. Now, Rashi is dealing with, living in a time period during which there was no knowledge of what a true chilazon was. It was far from, from living in Israel and didn't have access to this. And we had been far away 700 plus years, as per the Gemara, in the time of Rashi, from chilazon. But anyway, that's the description of this chilazon. The interesting thing, though, is that this is Rabbi Ameh talking about this. The end of Talmudic time period, we still do have references to Hilazon. Hilazon is lost in the eyes of the rabbis in the late Talmudic time period, in the 6th sixth century or so. It's, it's describing already Hilazon still. What's the reference in this context? Apparently, he says, you can look at a reality where there's, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, and, and, and the reference of Rashid to worm is very appropriate in this context. As a kid, I wish till, still today, I used to play in the uh, grass all the time. Play in the grass and play in, in, in the mud and stuff like that, you see one or two worms. It rains and you come back and there are worms everywhere. That's the description in this respect. And also the Hilazon, again, it might be that it's washed in from the sea. Rashi has one of two interpretations to how it became all filled up. I think the way the worms came is they surfaced to the, to the, to the ground level. Yeah, I think that's, that's the way that works. The way um, I think the Hilazon, Rashi has one of two interpretations. Again, you know, you either got washed in from the sea, the water came and it overflowed the sea, and as a result, the riverbank spread over and pushed this Hilazon into to the uh, valley. Alternatively, says Rashi, he heard from one of his rabbis that maybe it's the eggs of the Hilazon which brought forth the other ones the next day. What's that? Because you're watching from the top of the mountain, as I understand. Oh, that's not what it is? Because oh, says, I thought he's, he'd go to the top and then look down, you'll appreciate how much is there. In short, what the Gemara, what Rabbi Ameh is describing to this mean is, and it's a mandate and responsibility for each of us, within this world, although this world the coarse reality of existence is far from that spiritual elevated uh, reality of God, but to appreciate the to be able to look within the physical, natural, biological, scientific world that we have, and to appreciate quote-unquote the ways of God, not only is that a possibility, the way the rabbis seem to be describing it, it's a, re it's a responsibility, it's an opportunity to truly understand and give a certain reference point within this existence for quote-unquote the way it does and will work. Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.